does that trouble his conscience? No. Apart from anything else, it would be quite difficult for it to trouble his conscience, for in order for something to be troubled, it has first to exist. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's a scary, scary time, John. Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis-White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power. Hello to everybody out there on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John. Hi, Deborah. Uh, welcome to our podcast, Absolute Power, in which John is going to be my guide through the corridors of power, which he knows far better than I do. And I would suggest that both literally and geographically and metaphorically, which is what we're talking about today. Oh, I do like that combination of words, literally, geographically, metaphorically. It has a certain ring to it. Yes, it's the, it's the, the, kind, of, the kind of words strung together that you are particularly fond of, John. Um, I love the way you speak. Uh, well, a, big, a big draw for me podcasting with you is just getting to listen to the way you speak. I don't know another human being you, who speaks like you because you speak the way I write for The Guardian in full paragraphs. Very, It's like you're, you're always speaking in what sounds to me like a fourth draft. Well, that is probably so. It is hereditary. I have inherited my speaking style from my dad. Now, there's nothing to be done about the situation. Some people will deprecate it in the most astringent terms, and other people will say, well done. The only point I make in my own self-defence is that it is not an artifice or a contrivance. It's just the way I am. I can't do anything about it. I am beyond redemption. I have always spoken like this. It is worthy of note that when I was at primary school, we went on a visit to the New Forest and I can't remember why, but the teaching team included a supply teacher who was not to remain at the school for very long and who, in evident frustration with me burbling away, said to me, Burko, you are a walking dictionary. This was not intended, Deborah, I must emphasise, as a as compliment. As a compliment. Indeed. How old were you? I was nine. Wow. So you really have always been Speaker of the House. <laughs> You were born when, when, when well, the baby. I think I was accustomed in... to speaking when not requested or required, as well as when requested or required. So that in, was part in... of my difficulty as a as young a child. Pupil. Yeah. Yes. So you 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 got the right job for you. But when you know when the doctor in those days they used to say it's a boy or it's a girl. But in your case, I can imagine your mother giving birth and the doctor saying it's the speaker of the house. <laughs> now you are allowing creative license to carry you away. But I think I did always have a sense of justice sometimes was wrongly misdirected but I did always have a basic sense of justice and I remember once at secondary school when the head teacher summoned me 
most inappropriately, I thought, because he was irritated by something that my dad had said and asked me to report to the school. And the head teacher said to me in 1980, Burko, I should tell you that if your father persists in complaining about this matter, I will make a fool of him. And I said, Mr. Ellison, with great respect, the notion that in any confrontation between you and my father, it is my father who will be made to look a fool is completely incongruous. Oh, my God. Whereupon he yelled at me to leave the room. And I said, with pleasure. <laughs> oh, my God. The head teacher concerned was subsequently sentenced to five years imprisonment. And there being no causal link, I hasten to add. But did I cry into my soup? At his subsequent imprisonment, I did not. And did my father, whom I apprised of this exchange, feel any sympathy for the head teacher concerned? He did not. He said, son, I always thought that he was too big for his boots and not very good. And that seems to be the least of his crimes. <laughs> now, on this episode, we're going to be talking about statutory instruments. Statutory instruments. Now, most of these episodes, John... I've at least heard of and are familiar with the terms, even if I don't really understand them, and that's the point of the show. I'm saying, OK, we hear this term, private members, bill bounded around. I've got a vague idea what it is, but I need to know more. But in the case of statutory instruments, it sounds a little bit like something that you know might be in an operating theatre. What is a statutory instrument? A statutory instrument is a form of legislation which derives from and owes its origin to a piece of primary legislation. So the primary legislation might be the National Health Service Reform Act mm -hmm. and a statutory instrument is something introduced by a government to give effect to a provision of the Parent Act. Now, why is there a need for that statutory instrument? Short answer is it's usually to do with detailed provisions. In other words, Deborah, an Act of Parliament, a piece of primary legislation that changes the law in relation to a field of policy, cannot include absolutely everything that is to flow from that Act because some of it is just too detailed to include on the face of the bill. So the government will often say regulations will be brought forward to give effect to this policy purpose and they will be produced at a later date. And the statutory instrument will then set out the detail that the Parent Act promised but did not include. And those statutory instruments are a staple feature of the British parliamentary and legislative diet, but most people are not at all aware of them. It is absolutely commonplace under governments of all colours for there to be many, many hundreds, sometimes a thousand or more such statutory instruments in the course of a parliamentary session of a year or so, and they are treated in different ways. Now, I know there is a very real risk. It is a grave and alarming risk of your eyes glazing over, Deborah. I'm trying to listen, So I'm very listen, worried John. about what I'm might trying, happen to I'm trying very hard to listen. And normally I don't find it hard to listen to you at all. I could listen to you talk all day. I always find you fascinating. 
But in a very real way, can you try and make this less boring than it evidently is? What is a statutory instrument in, in, in the real world? This is... Pretty Patel brings in a bill, which I hate, because I hate everything Pretty Patel stands for, saying something like um, the, the Borders Bill, for example. She's going to make a law that if I were to see somebody drowning, I would have to say, hold on, do you have a visa? Because if you don't, if you're a refugee and you do not have the right to enter Britain, although legally at the moment you do, you just have to apply for asylum when you get here. But if you're what the papers would wrongly call an illegal immigrant, What's the statutory instrument that later on... So what you're saying is she's going, we'll figure out the details yes. after this is law. Yes. I don't want this, John. I don't like this. No. I, don't, I think she needs to... The statutory instruments, they need to be done before this. Why do they not bother? Because if the bill doesn't pass, it's a bit of a moot point. Is that the case? What's the dealio? I think the attitude of the government is that the bill sets out the main direction of travel, the main policy and the main intended effect of the policy. But as to the details, well, that can be dealt with later. But isn't that so, where the example, devil is, famously? Well, it can be. It can be. But the government will sometimes say that this part of the policy will be delivered by approved practitioners. And it so won't they specify it the what team. approved practitioners means, but that will be spelt out in regulations to follow in the statutory instrument, in what is called, to use another name for it, a statutory instrument is also known as secondary legislation. So that later piece of legislation, that statutory instrument, that secondary legislation will say what are the categories of approved practitioner what qualifications are required to be an approved practitioner, etc., etc. Now, is it the case in political debate that critics of the government will often say, I say to the Home Secretary, that should be on the face of the bill. Mm. We should not have to wait for secondary legislation. If the Right Honourable Lady is committed to the concept of approved practitioners, why is it that she's not able to tell us now what the categories of those approved practitioners will be. Is there going to be a requirement for them to have a certain number of years service? Will they have to have a professional qualification? Will they have to be registered with a particular agency? And if so, with which or with whom, etc. So those matters are often disputed. But on the whole, governments tend to say, look, we have given notice of our intention to reform the provision of primary health care, and this is the bill on the reform of primary health care. Some of the detail as to how we're going to change from primary care groups to primary care trusts will be set out later in secondary legislation, in a statutory instrument. But then now, what? that's once the bill is already passed and no one can do anything about it. Well, it's once the bill is already passed and is it's on law. the statute book, so that does make life extremely difficult, and a lot of people think that's very undemocratic. As to the secondary legislation itself, a key question is, well, will it be debated? And the answer is, the government on the whole isn't planning for it to be. I repeat, the government on the whole isn't planning for it to be, because, now here I know that you'll be 
I'm, you know, I'm, titillated with excitement. Beads of sweat upon your brown ear. Edge of my seat, John. Edge of the seat is precisely the point. These statutory instruments can be subject, now you heard it here first, they can be subject to the negative procedure or to the affirmative procedure. Most such regulations are designed by the government to be subject to the negative procedure. And what that means is that they are introduced, they come into effect straight away if somebody usually a political party usually the opposition official opposition but not always objects and wait for it prays against that statutory instrument time will be found for them to be debated for that statutory instrument or those regulations to be debated it might be on the floor of the house but it will usually be in a committee room upstairs and it will usually be only for one and a half hours and the government has usually packed that committee with its own party mps so even at the end of the debate the government will generally win but my point is here the government won't be planning for a debate they will introduce this under the negative procedure and it's up to people who don't want it to happen to notice that it is proposed to be happening or has started to happen and who want to object to it and they can force a debate mm. very occasionally i would say one tenth of the time the government will introduce a statutory instrument which is subject to the affirmative procedure and that means that they are quite explicitly saying usually because of the importance of the issue, this will be subject to, to a, a vote by both Houses of Parliament. But that is the minority case, not the majority and case. And this government So people who are, to want just... to be alert have got to be alert. They've got to be alert to the fact that the government okay. is planning to bring something in, perhaps even sneak something through. Now, I feel, now I feel, John, that my seat is wasted because I'm only using the edge of it. What are Henry VIII clauses? A Henry VIII clause in a piece of legislation mm -hmm. is a clause which enables a government minister to take further steps or deploy powers without further recourse to consultation of Parliament. Why is that called a Henry VIII clause? Because it's a recipe for untrammeled power. And it's called a Henry VIII clause because Henry VIII was in the habit of making it up as he went along and doing what he wanted to do, whether he had any sort of democratic authority for doing so. So, so when just, a bill... why, why do we have Henry VIII clauses then? Surely we should say no Henry VIII clauses, he was a bad guy. We should, but a government... Famously, famously... Ah. Not, not, uh, fam famously misogynistic. Why are we... Why are we uh, well, uh... I don't think... Yeah, no, I think, I think the trouble is that you are being innocent in this important matter, Deborah. I think the truth is that governments are against Henry VIII clauses when proposed by the other side, but in favour of them when proposed by their own. So, lots of people would say they're against Henry VIII clauses in general, but if they themselves are the minister wanting to strengthen their position or to give themselves maximum flexibility, they will tend to be more in favour in their case, because, of course, it's different, isn't it? There's an exceptionally compelling reason why this power is necessary. It's a little bit like the contrast between what somebody thinks as a backbench MP, when very often he or she will say, well, it's quite wrong for the government to arrogate to itself this level of power, and what that person will say if he or she becomes a, a member of the government and is obliged to 
stick to the government line. And I can think of many cases of people who are quite distinguished backbenchers championing the rights of Parliament, objecting to baronial powers for government, who then become ministers and they go along with it. So is a Henry VIII clause, is that a slang? You only use it as an insult. You go, hey, that's a Henry VIII clause, but you wouldn't say, I'm introducing a Henry VIII clause. No. Oh, perish the thought, heaven forfend. So Would a minister come forward and say, say I glutinous for power, megalomaniacal as I am, am saying to this house, give me the power to do X. No, it would not be brocaded in those terms. Right, it's only an accusation. How do Henry VIII clauses relate to statutory instruments? Henry VIII clauses can be part of a piece of primary legislation how do they then manifest themselves in statutory instruments? Well, a clause in a piece of primary legislation can say the following. Regulations will be introduced to allow or to facilitate or to prescribe which categories of person may deliver this service. And so that's the Henry VIII clause the detail then follows in the statutory instrument, but the statutory instrument owes its genesis to the Henry VIII clause. That's where the link comes. So what does this mean to me, John? Because I'm 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 struggling slightly, but what does it mean to me? Is it an attempt to avoid parliamentary scrutiny? Because I don't trust this government. Do you trust this government? No. Okay. Do you trust Priti Patel to be making laws in our best interests? No. I'm sure that Pretty is trying to do what she thinks is right. I wouldn't want to impugn, I genuinely wouldn't want to impugn her integrity and oh, say I that I think she's, I think she's deliberately oh, setting I've... out to disadvantage the country. I don't think that. I think she's trying to do the right thing, but she usually suffers from the disadvantage of being materially wrong. I mean, she can't be trying to do the right thing. She can't be. When you say, I'm going to send someone to 10 years for defacing a statue, you know what you're doing. She doesn't think that that's fair. She doesn't think that that's right. She knows that she's uh, trying to threaten people to stay home and not yeah. use their democratic right well, to protest. Well, it's, it's what I would call a populist expostulation and pretty offensive at that. It, it is, but so you can't... But she you... could, at a stretch, I suppose, if she were really deluded, persuade herself that there is a wider public or national interest in this measure. I can tell that you're looking askance at that. I don't, I don't it believe... It defies that. credulity. I don't believe that, that you suppose. believe, John... That Pretty Patel, when she says 10 years if you deface a statue, that 10 years in actual jail for defacing a statue, I don't think that you think that she thinks that's fair. I think that she, that we both know and she knows that she is trying to dissuade people from protest. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah in fact, I made a go of it. I did my best. You really I did. You tried. took a stab at playing devil's advocate and trying to see the world from the vantage Listen, point of P. The devil has just whatsapped. The devil's, devil's just difficult. whatsapped me and said, uh, "You know, you did a great job." No, some of this is what you would call press release politics. That is to say, passing legislation in order to provide the government with a press release to say how it is trying to improve behaviour or deter misconduct or protect the public from some threat, real. Or imagined. My own view is that legislation should not be designed to send messages. You often hear governments say, well, this bill will send an important signal about... Well, actually, bills 
prospective laws shouldn't be about sending signals. They should be about making change and change that is warranted according to the evidence. Um, does but, this... you know, if that were a threshold that had to be met by Home Office legislation, there would be rather fewer laws emanating from the Home Office than there are. Does this government, which seems to be pushing through a lot of pretty scary sweeping bills while they've got a majority, are they using these statutory instruments more to avoid parliamentary scrutiny, to get just to sweep things through that they want while they've got the power? I haven't measured it statistically, Deborah, so I can't say I'm not in the House now how it compares with numbers in previous years. But if you ask me, do I think the present government is notably respectful of Parliament, the answer is no. And of course, I knew Boris Alexander de Feffel Johnson before he became Prime Minister, and we would periodically converse. And I think what I would say about him is that, you know, he's very much a man of government. He wanted to be a man of government. He is a man of government. He wants to remain a man of government. Is he in any real sense a parliamentarian? Is he somebody who, who's deeply familiar with or respectful of or someone who entertains warm feelings towards Parliament? No. I remember when he left government, somebody had told him that he might have a right to make a personal statement about why he'd resigned from the government. And he approached me to discuss it. He'd by then been in the House of Commons for many years and a serving, experienced Member of Parliament really ought to know about the Convention of Personal Statements. Boris Johnson knew absolutely nothing about it. He came up to me to ask and he said, I'm told, I, 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 I'm told, Mr. 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 Speaker, that I might have a right to, to, to make a personal say, well, what, 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 what's the position? What's the position? Well, I mean, I'm really, really extremely grateful, sir, if you brief me. So it was very evident that he hadn't got the foggiest idea. And I explained to him that, yes, it wasn't an absolute right, but it was ordinarily accommodated. The Speaker would be very happy it was a great impersonation, by the him. way. It's, it's frightening that that was an impersonation of our Prime Minister, the leader of this great nation. So why do I make that point, which otherwise might strike somebody as some sort of ad hominem personal attack? It's not intended to be an ad hominem personal attack. Oh, I, I suppose what I'm it. saying is, well, you know, he didn't know what the position was. And was he well versed in the ways of Parliament? No. I mean, even as Prime Minister, at one point he, he started talking about the choice between what he was proposing and Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, he had, this was in 2019, Boris Johnson became a Member of Parliament in 2001, mm -hmm. served in Parliament until, I think, 2008, mm -hmm. when he became Mayor of London. So he was in for seven years, and then he came back in 2015. So by 2019, he'd served in total 11 years in Parliament. Anybody of any experience or length of service in Parliament knows that you don't refer to other Members of Parliament by name. Do you think if... Johnson could just stay in power, push any law through he wanted and erode the the democratic process as much as possible he would? I don't think he would think of it in those terms. I think he would think that what he was doing was, of course, very right and in the national interest and absolutely proper. Do I think he wakes up in the morning and asks himself the question, how can I damage democracy today? No, I think he gets up in the morning and thinks, how can I achieve what I want today? And if that means by use of baronial or oppressive power, does that trouble his conscience? No. Apart from anything else, it would be quite difficult 
for it to trouble his conscience. For in order for something to be troubled, it has first to exist. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's a scary, scary time, John. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If a law has passed, can a private citizen or an activist group ever influence what happens in the statutory instruments phase? If there is an opportunity for consultation, which there sometimes is, and it is sometimes presaged by a ministerial announcement, that there will be an opportunity of public consultation to hear either the public's views or the views of people in the sector concerned, the skills sector or the professional sector or the educational sector concerned, to give their thoughts about what the regulation should contain, well, then people might well volunteer their views about what should be in those regulations. Would it be normal for the average member of the public to volunteer views to his or her local MP about what should be the content of a particular piece of secondary legislation, it would be extraordinarily unusual because most of the time people wouldn't be aware that there was intended to be a statutory instrument. In other words, the people who will tend to want to offer views are the people who are affected by it in that particular sector. So if it was something to do with nursing qualifications, well, then people who've got strong views about the nursing and midwifery profession and who were aware that there was a piece of secondary legislation coming along, and who were concerned about what it might allow or not allow, they might express views about it. But would it be the subject of a great public debate? It would not. Okay. So you so you might be able to have some influence if you get in contact, but they're not going to consult. The government isn't going to consult the citizenry as a whole. What they would tend to do, if they consulted at all, was to adopt what I would call a corporatist approach of consulting sectoral interests so in a particular field they might consult providers of a service 
commissioners of a service, patients' advocacy groups, or in education they might say, yeah, or in education they might decide, well, we will consult a group of academies or their trusts in schools, or they might consult the National Union of Teachers or the NASUWT, the National Association of Schoolmasters and Union of Women Teachers, or whatever. But would it be sort of the mass public as a whole? No, it, they would say, in this particular sphere where these interests are affected, let's hear what this or that or the other representative body might think. Have to say. Yeah. So should journalists, concerned citizens and activists listening to this podcast be on the alert for statutory instruments and secondary legislation? Should we be watching out and going, well, hold on, OK, we're complaining about things we don't like in this bill, but actually that might not be the whole picture. Should we be more aware of what is done? Yes, I think that it would be a good thing if there were more journalists and more interested citizens who looked at legislation and as soon as they saw the word the Secretary of State may by order or may through regulations mm. would think, right, I'd better be on the lookout for that order or those regulations because very often they can contain details which are very significant so far as the development of the policy is concerned and the impact on the public as a whole or on a particular sector. So, yes, people ought to be more concerned about that. Is there at the moment much consciousness of statutory instruments or indeed of orders in council? There is very little consciousness of it. Mm. There have over the years been journalists who've taken an interest, but even then it has often been because of an ideological preoccupation with a particular subject. So the late Christopher Booker, who used to write for the Sunday Telegraph, he would often write about regulations and directives coming from the European Union and their transposition into British law. But he would principally be writing about it from the vantage point of somebody who was against the EU. Mm -hmm. So it was much more about his preoccupation with the EU than it was about anything else. Is there much of a demonstration of interest by journalists as a whole in secondary legislation? Not really, because very often it just isn't sexy. Mm. It just doesn't seem to be that interesting. But it doesn't mean that important things are not being done by these statutory instruments, because very often they are. In, in the way that a country can slide further towards fascism and away from democracy, is this a sort of unsexy, easy thing to look away from that might push us in that direction? It could. I don't think that we're at that point yet. I don't think that we're close to being a fascist state. I don't at this point. But I think that there is a tendency for governments to arrogate to themselves the right to use these mechanisms. And unless that tendency is watched very closely and, if necessary, checked, questioned, disputed, it will tend to grow over time. And governments are overridingly concerned about getting what they want with as little effort and disruption 
as possible? Are they mainly thinking of constitutional niceties or the importance of preserving other people's rights? No, they're mainly thinking of giving effect to what they want to do, preferably sooner rather than later. Well, it may be that that's just an inevitable and intrinsic Mm-hmm. characteristic of being a government minister or indeed a prime minister. But you need other people, you need counterweights in the political system who say, well, that may be the prime minister doing what he thinks is right for his purposes and his interests and his agenda. But meanwhile, we've got to watch whether what is being done can legitimately be defended or whether it ought to be prevented. Because the more it's eroded, yeah, no, you know, this week, we're not close to fascism, but in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, if we don't watch this, in the next 30 years and 40 years and 50 years, at some point, the government takes more and more and more power and we just look away because, as you say, it's not very sexy to think about secondary legislation. Who wakes up in the morning and is driven by secondary legislation that isn't yeah. paid to be? Nobody. Yeah. So the more those rights eroded and eroded and eroded and eroded, if we're looking down the line, at some point... Decisions are just taken, made, mm. laws are pushed through, and those laws are always in favour of power for the government yeah. and not power to the people. Yes. And that's what fascism is. So Indeed. eventually... So is it a danger? Is it a risk? Is it a sort of ever-present threat? It is, and it can be, if not completely overcome, greatly mitigated if there's a reasonable number of people who are sufficiently interested to ask the question. There's a market there, either for a journalist or mm. for a serious academic who wants to study the burgeoning phenomenon of statutory instruments, to do so and tell us what the evidence shows. What changes have been delivered by that means, with possibly quite large numbers of members of parliament being completely and blissfully or otherwise ignorant of the fact that those changes have been made. Jonah S. from Facebook asks, uh, if you could rename statutory instruments to make them sound sexier and more interesting to people so they couldn't be misused, what name would you would you call them? How would you rebrand them? They're, do you think they've given it a dull name so people look away? <laughs> Probably, yes. Because yes, I yes. think most people have never heard. Most of the topics people go, oh, yeah, I've got a vague working idea of that or I've heard of that and I don't know what it means really. But this, I think no one ever talks about. No, nobody ever talks about statutory instruments, and I don't know anybody really who talks about secondary legislation. In 22 years as a Member of Parliament, I don't think I ever received a letter from a constituent complaining about the burgeoning phenomenon of statutory (laughs) instruments or secondary legislation. Certainly nobody ever came to my surgery to complain about it. So, no, something like devil in the detail or the hidden laws, chapter one. So, finally... Where would you put statutory instruments and secondary legislation in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power? I would say they're somewhere in the middle. I don't think that they're about absolute power and I don't think that we have got secretive government in the sense that there's the surface bill that is designed to mislead you and isn't very important, and the detail which makes all the difference. I don't think it's quite like that, but I think it is an issue in that lots of things which affect us aren't fully debated. So where, on the scale, I would say, if one is no impact at all and ten is huge impact, it would be around three or four. So it might only be a minority 
phenomenon, so to speak. I don't think that it, it describes the detail of the operation of British government in any comprehensive way. But it is an issue that we've got to keep an eye on. Mm. And the fact that most people have absolutely no understanding whatsoever, because they've never been told about statutory instruments, does matter. And whereas lots of other spheres of political activity are focused on by journalists and or academics and pressure groups, there's very little by way of the study of secondary legislation that ever gets any notice. So it's it sits at a three or four, but it could sit higher if it we could don't sit keep higher, an eye, yes, eye on it. Yes, exactly. It's Well, it could grow like Topsy or in the chimney of David Cameron's house, like wisteria. Well, John, as always, <laughs> it has been fascinating. We'll be back next week with another episode of Absolute Power. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Order. You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White. And me, John Burko. Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinski. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.